Welcome to the Future of Money podcast by the Digital Euro Association. In this podcast, you will learn about the disruption of technology in the monetary and financial system. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to round number four of our podcast series on the digital euro. I'm sitting here today again with Manuel. Hi, Manuel. Hi, Alex. Uh, nice to hear you again. Yeah. So last round today, it's part number four out of four. Quick recap, as always, on the first four parts we have done already. So in the first part of the series, we have talked about our current monetary system. The main learning here was there exists a public and a private version of the euro. And the same is the case also for the digital euro. So our main argument here was there will also be a public and a private version of the digital euro. In the second part, we then talked about the public form of the digital euro, in particular wholesale and retail CBDC. And then in the last part, the third part, we talked about the private digital euro. We were mainly talking about things like stable coins, e-money tokens, tokenized commercial bank money, etc. And the key takeaway of this uh, third part of the last part was that this private form of digital money, of the digital euro, differs in the sense that how close is it to central bank money. So currently, our account-based euro is always closely tied to central bank money because it's ultimately settled in central bank money. And current designs of a digital euro are kind of detached from central bank money. So by making the money digital, by digitizing it, we kind of move away a bit from the central bank euro. So this... this um, attachment to the central bank euro decreases and this creates problems um, and problems such as fungibility for instance and that was one of the main topics of the last session that we talked about how could we handle this fungibility problem etc and when we look at new regulatory initiatives all over the world these initiatives usually aim to ensure that these new forms of the digital euro do not move too far away from central bank money so this was uh, basically the bottom line of part number three. Manuel, what are we doing today in the fourth part of this series? Yeah, today in the last series, uh, we actually enter um, the most important topic here, uh, which we uh, didn't uh, focus on so far, basically is that uh, why do we actually need the digital euro? So we're basically looking at use cases for the digital euro and um, also talk about um, the um, different types of, of euro, when, when, when will it come and for which purposes, which type of uh, digital euro is going to be used. An important point we will make is that uh, there's not going to be such a, su such a thing as the digital euro, uh, but there will probably uh, going to be a coexistence between uh, public and private versions of the digital euro, just like we have it today. And uh, um, uh, importantly, and this is something that we want to stress again, uh, CBDC is not really the solution to all of our problems. So when we think about use cases for digital money, uh, many people think about uh, a CBDC, but uh, we want to show that this is not really the case, but that we will have different versions of the euro that will also address different types of use cases. So now let's start with our points and uh, we will start with uh, the question, why do we actually need a digital euro? And Alex, you already mentioned it. Um, we want to recall here that when we talk about the digital euro, we actually mean a digitized euro. So digitized basically means that we represent the euro in its bits and bytes and therefore in uh, a tokenized form as a bearer instrument. Um, we have already explained this several times um, and the, the motivation of the Western central banks is not necessarily focusing on this discussion about digitization of money. So it's not necessarily um, a technological question. And therefore, we also want to focus now in this part uh, two different perspectives and two different dimensions. Uh, first of all, it's going to be the technological or the end user dimension. But also we will focus on the central bank perspective uh, when it comes to um, yeah, the discussion about a central bank digital currency or a CBDC. 
Yeah, so I think it makes a lot of sense to distinguish between the two perspectives. So let's first talk about why do we need a digital euro from a technological or end-user perspective, and then we move to the central bank perspective. So from a technological point of view, what happens in the end is that we take the euro out of accounts and represent it as a token on a distributed ledger. And this brings several advantages. So for instance, using DLT enables us to get rid at least of some intermediaries. Money becomes more divisible, so we can make micropayments. We can make payments more efficiently, meaning faster and cheaper, especially if we make payments uh, across borders, for instance, for remittances. The whole thing becomes immutable. So if we use a distributed ledger technology, we have, um, as it says, uh, the ledger is distributed. It cannot be changed anymore once we have broadcasted this information to the system. So this provides trust and makes fraud uh, transparent. So it's, it's easier to detect fraud. Then the IT security and resilience increases because the system is distributed and hence it is more difficult to hack. So that's a, a classical proposition of blockchain technology. You can get rid of the single point of failure because the ledger is held at several um, instances or nodes distributed across probably geographies um, and also time zones, etc. Then uh, using DLT, money can be made interoperable with DLT ecosystems. So we can use money in programmable um, environments and connect it to smart contracts. And that's a very important building block for the industry 4.0, for instance, for machine-to-machine -machine payments in the so-called economy of things or in Internet of Things applications, etc. On top of that, tokenized money, so money on a DLT, can serve as the cash lag for the trading of tokenized assets. So it can facilitate automated payments. It can facilitate the lifecycle management of, of assets such as coupons, interest rate payments, um, etc. And then uh, related to this and also very important, with tokenized money and tokenized assets, we can make true delivery versus payment. So the digital assets and the digital euro are basically fed into a smart contract and the smart contract then execute a transaction based on certain requirements. And the interesting thing here is that this is a so-called atomic swap. So the asset token and the money token are swapped instantly and there is no back office work and in particular no um, counterparty risk um, appearing in such a, a DVP settlement. And then last but not least, Payments can be automated and they can be programmed with a high degree of flexibility because the, the business logic we can program into a smart contract is more flexible than the logic we are able to program in current uh, payments. Yeah, so thanks for these insights again. Um, and these are basically all the points that most people also think of when they think about a CBDC. But what we want to highlight now is uh, the perspective of the central banks. And uh, as uh, we have already stated, this is not necessarily only a technological discussion. But uh, so, so for central banks, the, the digital euro um, is not automatically and necessarily also a digitized euro, which uh, can be represented as a token, for example, on a distributed ledger system. More, uh, however, it's, it's rather the question um, if non-banks should uh, get access to a digital form of central bank money. And this can be also, for example, be uh, transferred um, in uh, using accounts. Um, just think of the situation where you as an end user also have an account at the central bank. So it's rather really an economic one. And, and the technology question uh, basically comes second. And this is also what the ECB tried to answer um, in their report on the digital euro. Um, when they uh, looked at uh, several scenarios that could induce the euro system to issue a digital euro. And we now want to um, present you these uh, basically seven points or that seven um, yeah, scenarios that could lead to an introduction of a central bank digital currency. The first one. Uh, the ECB mentioned was uh, the digitalization and the independence of the European economy. So uh, basically what they said is if the digitalization of the European economy requires such a tokenized form of the Euro, uh, of the Euro 
and the private sector does not uh, create a solution for that uh, demand, then the ECB could step in and provide some form of um, uh, digital euro. Yeah, so Manuel, my, my goal would have been to comment on each of these points now, maybe a bit critically, but this first one is so generic that I, I mean, I cannot, <laughs> cannot comment on anything here because, of course, if we say the digitalized European economy needs a digital form of money, it, it could be a CBDC. So I think I, I can agree. I can agree to that. Yeah. The second point um, that they made is. And this is something that you can read quite often, actually, also, for example, from the Swedish Riksbank. This is their main motivation to issue a central bank digital currency. And that is basically that the role of cash as a means of payment declines significantly. Um, so in Europe, this has not been the case so far um, to the extent that the central bank actually decides that they need to issue a central bank digital currency or so a digital form of cash, let's say, because cash is still um, a relatively high used, highly used in, in Europe. Whereas um, or however, if such a scenario also steps in, maybe also looking forward now after the COVID pandemic, that the um, payment um, payment behavior of the European citizens uh, uh, changes dramatically to private forms of payments, then this uh, ECB could actually use that as a reason to issue a CBDC. And that's for me, to be honest, already the main reason and the main use case for a CBDC, because I believe physical cash, physical banknotes will not be used forever at a certain point. And you have mentioned in Sweden, we can already observe this today. At a certain point, there will be almost no cash, physical cash around. And then the question is, of course, how can we transfer these helpful characteristics of cash, for instance, being able to make offline payments, being able to make anonymous payments, how, we, how can we transfer these characteristics into a digital world? And I believe that this is best being done by the central bank and by with, with this public form of money instead by the private sector. So this is for me really a, a, a future replacement uh, for cash is one of the main use cases for me for a, a CBDC. Yeah, and I would add to this, uh, not only those uh, reasons that you've just mentioned, but basically also the form of the money, because it is public money from the central bank. And this is uh, very special as well, because uh, all the other types of money that we currently use are basically private forms of money. They are also uh, transferred on private payments, uh, uh, payment uh, networks and payment services. And the Swedish Riksbank actually uh, puts it uh, forth quite um, uh, yeah, quite uh, strongly that they want to provide a public form of money for the citizens uh, to actually provide them uh, yeah, with, with safe money uh, and, and as an alternative to um, all the private forms of money that um, are used currently. The third reason that the ECB also um, explained was that a situation might occur in which a form of money other than uh, euro-denominated central bank money, commercial bank deposits, or also electronic money becomes a credible alternative as a medium of exchange and potentially also as a store of value, uh, store of value in the euro area. For example, you can think of a global stablecoin such as DM, uh, which are used um, uh, pretty much um, without being connected to central bank money or also uh, the Chinese um, central bank digital currency. So imagine if this is used as a, a very relevant medium of exchange or potentially also as a store of value. So um, if these situations occurred, the central bank could step in and provide a CBDC. Yeah, and I think this third point, so this competition from outside was one of the main reasons why this re report has been published in the first place, because as we all know, uh, the, the first Libra white paper, as it has been called back then, now, now DM, was a huge um, push for the central banks around the world, world to increase their efforts in also issuing maybe a, a central bank uh, issued form of, of digital money. Of course, there's a big advantage DM has over CBDC. A CBDC is always domestic. And uh, DM can be an international global, as, as you called it, a global stable coin. Mm -hmm. So I think in order to really compete with DM, central banks also need to think about um, cross-border payment 
um, characteristics or features of their currencies in order to make it really smooth uh, also to make to make basically international payments with their with their money the fourth point that the ecb mentioned is a situation in which um, a cbdc so a central bank digital currency in an electronic form uh, was or would be necessary actually to um, do monetary policy so it could become beneficial for the central bank to use a cbdc to actually have a better tool for their monetary policy um, uh, yeah for their monetary policy and this could actually mean to impose negative interest rates or also um, to provide helicopter drops uh, of money to all citizens yeah i think the ecb is not talking about helicopter drops of money i believe that's something we have added here but uh, i would i would maybe go even further and we could also add here something like the programmability of money so that you give tokens um, a certain inner logic so to say and for instance you can only use tokens for for paying for food for instance or you cannot use it in order to pay for alcohol or maybe the token gets um, worthless after one month in, in order to make sure that um, it's been used within a certain time frame i think there is probably this might already be fiscal policy right we need mm. to be careful to distinguish between monetary and fiscal policy mm. But I think this is also something um, that makes this uh, really valuable that you can be more flexibly uh, using money for certain uh, purposes. Yeah, I mean, you could hypothesize if uh, the United States, for example, already had a CBDC. Now, uh, when it comes to these uh, checks that they provide to all the citizens uh, for the Corona relief package, yeah. um, this could actually be used then as well. I mean, the lines are blurred between monetary and fiscal policy here, obviously. But um, yeah, they could also use some form of programmable money there that these uh, stimulus checks could only be used for certain uh, reasons yeah, or for yeah. certain use cases. Yeah. Okay, now uh, the fifth point that the ECB has also included is uh, if there is a need to mitigate the probability that a, a cyber incident, a natural disaster, a pandemic or other extreme events could actually hinder the provision of the payment services. Now, uh, I think this is a, a, a bit of a theoretical uh, case here because we have, to my mind, never seen really a, a, a situation in which the payment service or the payment sector, uh, the, the payment networks uh, have not worked anymore uh, due to some extreme events. But this obviously could also be the case uh, in the future. Uh, let's say when there's uh, enormous electricity outages, for example, like in Texas, uh, as we've seen uh, some some weeks ago, that actually the whole ele electricity system collapses and that uh, the ECB then provides some form of money that can also be transferred without uh, the, the existing payment se uh, sector, uh, the, the existing payment networks. Yeah, and, and even though that these natural disasters or cyber incidents might sound theoretic, theoretical i still believe it's good to have some form of redundancy in our payment system and i feel more comfortable if there is uh, when there is a private payment system as we have it today and a public uh, payment system also in the digital uh, world so today we have a, a private digital payment system that's i mean the bank-to-bank -bank payments the uh, the normal transactions we are doing today and we also already have a public payment system today which is basically cash so when we physically hand over cash, that's the public payment system we have today. So why not bringing this system also into the digital world and then uh, having some redundancy, as I said, some more resilience and security if one of the two systems fails or even uh, only having a hiccup is already enough for a payment system to create huge problems. So so I believe it's it's a good point to say we want to provide another payment system next to the existing private payment systems. The sixth point uh, that the ECB mentioned is um, a situation in which the international role of the euro might become threatened due to CBDCs from foreign central banks. Now, this point goes a little bit back to point number three that we have already talked about, uh, but highlights the threat of a, a CBDC from a foreign central bank um, uh, with more efforts here. So a digital euro could support the international demand for euros. Um, so let's think also about a situation in which the role of the euro uh, in international payments um, uh, yeah, declines significantly. 
Um, and uh, CBDC could actually be an answer to this. But also it could enable uh, more efficient cross-border payments, um, for example, also for remittances. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And of course, we, I mean, I like this argument to say our monetary sovereignty might be threatened by foreign uh, CBDCs, so let's create our own. Um, but then, of course, we are threatening the monetary sovereignty of maybe smaller countries. So that's, of course, also something we need to think about if now. And that's maybe even more true for the U.S. dollar. I mean, there is there are billions of physical U.S. dollars um, wandering around uh, globally because it's used as a substitute means of payment in countries with uh, weaker currencies. If this if this is possible now digitally so really easy to get your hands on digital dollars or digital euros in order to use them as a means of payment in these uh, weaker weaker currency countries that's of course a huge threat for these countries and we are of course totally destroying their monetary sovereignty then then so i think that's a point we we need to think about here and I, i'm sure i mean the ecb is already thinking about this and there will not be an unlimited use of digital euros outside the euro area um, but i just wanted to to bring up this point here And the, sec uh, the seventh and last point the ECB made in their uh, paper is a situation in which the Eurozone decides to proactively support improvements in the overall costs, but also the ecological footprint of the monetary and payment systems. And basically to exert pressure on the private sector through competition to lower the resource consumption, but also the costs of the payment systems. Now, this might sound a bit futuristic um, and what the ECB could maybe mean by this is that a consensus mechanism such as proof of work is used um, in a payment system from the private sector that consumes a lot of uh, energy and that the central bank then enters this market as a competitor and provides a better uh, or an, a less energy consuming um, consensus mechanism and therefore exert pressure on the private sector. So. Um, Personally, I'm not too sure what what they mean by by this, but uh, maybe they also included it uh, to to you know participate in this debate about sustainability here. Yeah, I think it's just an important. I mean, I think they had it as some some special points, like the last two points in this list yeah, we have just yeah. went through. They were kind of separated from the others, yeah. and for me, it also. I mean, it sounds a bit far fetched to be honest. It sounds to me a bit like there was a, a manager saying we need some ESG uh, goals in there. <laughs> Right, because I mean, it, it's 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 really difficult to make this argument that now, when the central bank offers a payment system, there is a, a smaller ecological footprint, and I'm pretty sure they have not thought about proof of work because I mean, also the private, the current private sector payment systems are not using proof of work. I mean, that no. that's something exclusively Bitcoin is using, and maybe uh, some other cryptocurrencies. So yeah, I, I totally buy the point that this exerts pressure from an Uh, competition point of view and competition is always good but i mean making the conclusion here that this would lower the resource consumption um i'm not sure to be honest yeah so uh, these these seven points uh, obviously can also be understood as potential reasons for the central bank to issue a cbdc so probably they have thought of um yeah reasons they can use um and and this might be just one of them that they could also um, use to to issue a cbdc but um yeah coming back Uh, these were the, the seven scenarios that the ECB provided and other central banks might uh, obviously also have additional reasons to issue a digital currency, but we focused here on the ECB. And uh, these can be, for example, financial inclusion, um, but also maybe to provide a, a better uh, electronic payment system. Uh, so maybe some uh, developing country might not have the um, well-developed um, payment systems that we have in Europe or uh, in the United States. Um, but this uh, plays a minor role here in the euro area and therefore we did not uh, focus too much here on these reasons. And now the question obviously comes across, uh, who is going to provide the digital euro or which digital form of euro is going to be provided by which institution? Yeah, so we have now talked um, in a lot of detail about why a central bank would provide a digital euro, in particular the, the ECB. But something we have made clear several times here is that when we talk about the digital euro, we do not only talk about the public digital euro, but also the private digital euro. And something we 
hear quite often is from market participants and from our colleagues is that as soon as we have a CBDC, all our problems will be solved. And we believe this is too simple. It won't be that easy. And, and one needs to be a bit more precise which digital euro is solving and addressing which uh, use cases and problems. And in order to make this as clear as possible, what we are, what we decided to do here is we decided to differentiate between uh, the digital euro used in an interbank payment system and the digital euro used for payments between non-banks. So the question is, who is going to provide a euro for interbank payments and who is going to provide a digital euro for non-bank payments? So let's maybe start with the interbank payments. And uh, let's look at the current system which we have. And currently, interbank payments are basically done 100% in central bank money. And these, as we uh, come back or as we have stated in the first one, and we can come back to this in the first uh, episode, is that these are called central bank reserves. And these reserves are basically the ultimate settlement asset because central bank money is the least risky asset that basically exists. And banks need to settle all the um, uh, claims that they have against each other uh, and uh, this is done in central bank money. In the future, parts of these reserves might actually be tokenized and this we uh, called or th this is actually called a wholesale CBDC. So the central bank could actually be the provider of the digital euro for interbank payments just as it is today using a wholesale CBDC. And this brings about several advantages, especially in relation to trading the tokenized assets. For instance, delivery versus payment, as Alex has described already in the financial sector. So digital assets have already been transferred successfully via DLT. There have been several proof of uh, works, uh, proof of concepts here. Uh, we have also seen some legislations, for example, in Switzerland, but also in Liechtenstein in Europe. Um, uh, in under which digital assets can be issued uh, on, and also transferred uh, legally. But the problem is that the cash lag remains to be digitized in order to use uh, smart contracts and, uh, for example, also to provide uh, delivery versus payment mechanisms using these smart contracts. Now, theoretically, also the private sector could, of course, provide a digital euro for these use cases. So uh, private wholesale settlement systems, so to say, might fill this gap until we actually get a wholesale CBDC, because these wholesale CBDCs in particular in Europe are still um, a couple of years away. So there are different versions how the private sector could step in. So for instance, we have something like the JP Morgan coin, which is kind of a private settlement coin by, by JP Morgan, who can be used also across borders in order to settle payments across their uh, branches. And what's even more elegant, because it, it uh, works uh, independently of branches or banks, is a so-called synthetic wholesale CBDC. So uh, this is very similar to a th synthetic retail CBDC, but simply only with central bank money in an interbank system. And something like this is proposed by Finality. So Finality is a corporation of 14 um, international um, banks and NASDAQ, which want to make interbank settlements possible in a tokenized uh, way. And they focus currently on five currencies and they still are in, in touch with uh, several central banks and, and, and wait for these corporations to start and go live. But the goal is really to say we are, as a private institution, we are tokenizing central bank money and we are handing out, out a token which is backed 100% with, a, uh, with central bank money in, in an account. And this token can then be used riskless as a means of settlement across uh, institutions which have no trust to each other because the token has uh, no risk since it is 100% uh, backed. Now, these were the interbank payment uh, dimension, so to say. Now, wh what we uh, focus now on now is uh, the payments between non-banks. And digital payments between non-banks uh, currently in the system are not uh, done 100% in central bank money. So uh, let's maybe look at Germany, for example, because we have uh, very uh, good and, and uh, very recent figures that were provided by the Bundesbank uh, very lately for 2020. And in 2020, in, in Germany, roughly one third of the value of the transactions was done in physical cash. And this physical cash, as we know, only uh, is created by the central bank. Whereas two thirds of the value 
was transferred using digital payments, inclusive um, bank transfers, direct debits, credit cards, or also online payments. So two thirds of the payments were done in some form of private money and not in cash, uh, which is the only form of, of public money that the non-banking sector can hold. And not only the value of the transactions uh, matters here, but also when we think about the money supply, the private sector is um, basically the, the main provider of money that we have in the current system. So uh, the private sector creates the majority of the money supply and also um, uh, this form of money is used as the main store of value. So for example, in Euro, um, only uh, roughly 10% of the money supply M2 is created by the central bank. In the United States and the US dollar, it's quite similar with 10%. Swiss franc, it's roughly 9%. And uh, the Great Britain pound is very extreme with only 3% of the money being created um, by the central bank. So what we want to um, uh, highlight here is that for non-banks, private forms of money uh, matter most, even though that roughly one third of the value of the transactions is still done in, in physical cash by the central bank. Yeah, now, of course, the question arises, does it make sense to keep this division of labor in the future when it comes to payments between non-banks? Or should we replace this private euro, which is still dominant when it comes to, to this realm, um, with a CBDC? And we just wanted to highlight this, this fact that replacing private money with a CBDC would completely overhaul our current monetary system. And this, of course, has potentially very disrupting effects on the banking sector and also on other um, market participants. And normally, central banks are really conservative institutions and they are not interested in taking over as a provider, as the main medium of exchange and main store of value, since this is still private money today. So what would happen if the central bank really takes over and we would all in the future only use CBDC? Well, at first, the balance sheet of the central bank would explode. So the central bank kind of becomes the main provider of money, which is the liability side of the central bank's balance sheet. But then the question comes up, okay, but what does the central bank hold as an asset against this liability? And what effectively would have to happen is that the central bank purchases, for instance, a government bonds or other safe assets, and thereby the central bank would become one of the biggest asset managers uh, worldwide. And at the same time, they would, of course, disintermediate uh, the banking sector. And last but not least, that's also something we may not uh, must not underestimate is that if this is the case and the central bank is the only provider of money, that the central bank is also responsible for innovation. And I believe that this would stifle innovation if the central bank and not the private sector is responsible for coming up with intelligent uh, payment solutions. So re a retail CBDC will not be able to take over from the private means of payments and replace the private digital euro completely. Instead, what we believe is that there will be a coexistence between the public digital euro and the private digital euro. And now the question is, of course, if the two coexist, which use case will be addressed by which form of this digital euro? Yeah, and this is something that we want to focus on now. So let's start maybe with the public side. And uh, the, the public side might actually only need to solve problems that are not being solved by the private sector. At least this could be argued from an economic um, analysis here. So uh, the public sector could actually look at the solutions that the private sector um, comes up with and then see if there are some sweet spots that are not uh, being solved by the private solutions and therefore provide some form of digital euro that solves these problems or that solves these use cases that are not uh, being solved by the private sector. So, for example, this could be providing an additional resilient payment system that functions independently of the private sector. We have already come up with this argument when talking about um, some uh, uh, yeah, drastic events or uh, um, you know pandemics or um, uh, natural disasters, which might um, create uh, problems for the private sector payment system, such that uh, the uh, ECB or the central bank, the public sector, um, need to create a resilient payment system that also works uh, within these um, economic 
drastic events. Another um, reason could be to provide offline payments. Uh, currently, these offline payments can only be done with uh, physical cash. And this might also um, be possible in the upcoming future. But in a very extreme event in the future, um, cash might not be used anymore. And therefore, there could be actually a use case for a digital um, euro that can also be transferred offline. Another argument would be that the ECB provides or the central bank provides a solution to ensure a certain level of anonymity and privacy. And uh, this is, I think, also a very important um, topic that the central bank could actually focus on. And interestingly, this uh, has also been the, um, yeah, the, the, the greatest respondents of uh, uh, the European citizens that gave their respondents to the um, consultation of the ECB that has been uh, done in, in December and January of last year or this year. Uh, and so 46% of the respondents um, actually stated that anonymity and privacy uh, is one of the, the main um, use cases that they see for a digital euro. So the central bank could actually uh, still provide this feature of cash also in a digital world and therefore also um, you know, uh, use these, these features of cash that currently exist and transform these into the digital world. Yeah, I believe one important point we need to make here is that offline payments and anonymity are something that physical cash currently has. And we do not believe, or at least I, Manuel, please jump in if you see this differently. I do not believe that these are features the private sector would offer. So you cannot monetize offline payments or anonymity. I do, at least I do not believe that um, people or consumers will be willing to pay an extra fee in order to make their payment anonymous, um, at least not in a, in a way that it makes sense to invest a lot of money for the private sector and develop these systems, because this is something we also need to mention. From a technological point of view, this is extremely complex to make true offline payments and truly anonymous payments um, possible. So at least in my opinion, this is kind of a market failure because this cannot be monetized and the developing costs cannot be internalized such that it's, there is a need for the public sector to jump in and offer these um, characteristics. No. Yeah, and, and maybe, I mean, I think what's also clear is, and Manuel has mentioned it already, that it was one of the main responses or the main response of the ECB consultation that you need uh, something like anonymity or offline payments. And I think it's clear that this is important to, to a lot of people. So, and, and for instance, you do, you do not want to um, share all the all your data and the, and the the, the money that you've spent, for instance, if it's about things like psychotherapy, uh, psychotherapy, if you do, if you purchasing pregnancy tests, if you're purchasing certain pharmaceuticals, I think we can think of a lot of examples where it's maybe not in your interest to share everything. And uh, I mean, m more generally, some people just prefer paying everyday things anonymously. Uh, so for instance, it can be as simple as paying at the bakery or at the coffee shop. And I mean, there exists a right to privacy. And uh, yeah, I, I think this is why we believe these are very, very important characteristics that should be implemented and that should be part of a, a CBDC. Now, this was the public side um, where we stated that actually the public side should focus on these or could focus on these uh, market failures. And the private sector now comes in uh, because they obviously also have their reason to provide a digital euro. And the private sector um, should focus on the innovative and, and complex payment needs of the end users. That's at least what we believe. So they should be um, innovative and uh, built in intelligent and convenient solutions uh, and I also provide um, the supply of the money that uh, the industry might demand. For example, um, B2B payments uh, in the machine uh, world. Um, so for example, machine to machine payments um, when uh, certain machines directly communicate to each other and this, uh, these are basically forms of, of transfers of money between businesses. Industry 4.0 use cases. So, for example, when you uh, think of um, uh, electric, um, 
devices that are also connected to the payment system and that these electric devices have a chip with their wallet on it and that these electric de uh, electronic devices then also can uh, issue and receive uh, digital payments. But also the programmable payments that the real economy might need. So for example, in the producing uh, industry. So for example, paper use mechanisms uh, where uh, very expensive machinery can be purchased not only in advance like it is today or maybe leased, but basically which will be paid directly um, uh, relative to the usage of the machinery. And also, when you think about, for example, um, the supply chain and logistics, uh, machineries could um, use some sort of sensors that signal that a certain good needs to be reordered from the suppliers in order to ensure the seamless supply chain. So the whole supply chain could actually be automated uh, and make uh, be made a lot more um, flexible, actually, because the machineries would sensor um, if they need some new um, supplies here and then order them directly themselves. So I believe one of the key ta or the, the key takeaway here from this discussion is that the monetary system in the future will remain a public-private partnership. It's not that the central bank takes over everything, but it's also not the case that the private sector is going to take to take uh, over everything. So Manuel, I'm looking at the time and we are quite advanced already. So let's maybe jump into our last point before we make kind of a wrap up of the whole series. So the last point is the, the discussion of when will the digital euro be launched. And I mean, we have discussed now a lot about the private and public digital euro. And one thing we need to mention, of course, is that it's not only the case that a CBDC will not only uh, will not solve all our problems. A CBDC will also have a longer time to market than probably most of the private solutions. So in the euro area, for instance, we do not expect a CBDC before 2026. Uh, so I think it's clear that we need private solutions before a CBDC comes into play. And we let's maybe distinguish between short, medium and long term solutions that can be provided um, by the by the private sector. And, and one thing we which is basically available now are so called trigger solutions, which basically are you can think of them like technical adapters that link the DLT world and our current uh, existing payment systems. So if there is a smart contract sitting on a blockchain and triggering a payment, these trigger solutions make it possible to settle these payments by using a existing payment systems such as SEPA, TIPS, SWIFT, um, etc. And that's really elegant because in my opinion they address most of the use cases we have today and they are already uh, working today. So this is a very elegant way for the private sector to solve a lot of the problems of the industry if the industry has really um, use cases and business processes that run over a DLT and that trigger a payment at a certain point in time. In the medium term, maybe in the upcoming year or uh, upcoming years, we will also see some private uh, really tokenized forms of the digital euro. We have already seen some forms of it as uh, e-money tokens, for example, also uh, from a German bank. And these e-money tokens will also be regulated. And this is obviously a very important topic here when it comes to um, uh, use such digital euros in uh, real economic um, events here. And uh, this is obviously the Mika regulation from the EU commission here the markets and crypto assets regulation which will also regulate these private stable coins another form of private digital euro could also become a synthetic cbdc or like a tokenized commercial bank money um, a synthetic cbdc could be a way to ensure the fungibility problems of the tokenized commercial bank money so they might go hand in hand uh, but it is still a bit unclear if and when uh, this will uh, happen or the, if we if and when we will see such a, a digital euro and it's still in a very early stage of development and uh, the the discussion about the possibilities here have only just begun from the public side uh, we can expect in the medium term uh, some wholesale cbdc for interbank payments which actually uses the advantage of the new technology in the financial markets uh, for example for delivery versus payments and uh, as an alternative, we might see some synthetic wholesale CBDCs, 
Uh, and uh, Alex already mentioned Finality here. Uh, this is a consortia of uh, a lot of international banks that actually want to provide the solution now. Uh, and uh, the only thing that remains to be um, yeah, uh, discussed here is which central banks want to cooperate in the system. Yeah, and then in the, in the long term, so we're talking about not earlier than 2025, 26 and, and beyond, we will, next to the wholesale CBDC, probably also get a retail CBDC. However, as we have discussed uh, already, it is unclear whether this retail CBDC really solves all our problems. Probably not. So um, let's. it's to be seen for which purposes this retail CBDC will be used. So we believe in the long term there will be a coexistence between different forms of public and private uh, euros that address different use cases. Okay, Manuel. So I think it's time now after four parts of the series uh, to make kind of a wrap up and summarize our key takeaways. So what we have done here now, we have basically three key takeaways, which we want to share with you at the end of this uh, series. And Manuel, why don't you start with our first key takeaway uh, across all four parts of this uh, series on the digital euro? Yeah, sure. And maybe as a, a point before I do that, this whole discussion that we have focused this this four series podcast now on was basically on digitization of money and the difference between digitalization and digitization. So represent money as a token on a DLT. And we have said that there is going to be public and private versions of um, uh, this future digital euro, just as we have in the current system. So let's focus as the first key main takeaway on the current system, because this is still uh, a lot of times not clear. We have public and private forms of, of the euro and of, of the current money uh, that we use today. The public money is cash and central bank reserves. They're both issued by the central bank. And the private forms of money are commercial bank money that are issued by or that is issued by commercial banks. The private sector creates the majority of the money supply and uh, the majority of um, the, 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 the store of value actually also. Public money is used for the ultimate settlement of private digital money, especially when it comes to interbank payments, but also for payments with physical, physical cash of non-banks. Our second main takeaway is that the digital euro increases the efficiency of payments and trading. So why does it make sense to take money out of accounts and represent it as a token on a distributed ledger? So in other words, why do we actually need the digital euro? And our answer to this was because it enables us to make payments and trading more efficient, faster, cheaper and more transparent. So. We are less reliable on intermediaries. Um, the ledger becomes immutable and thereby fraud resistance. We can use programmable payments in machine-to-machine -machine payments, micropayments in the industry 4.0 environment. We can automate payments. We can manage the asset lifecycle easier. We can do delivery versus payments. So these atomic swaps we have talked about with smart contracts when we trade tokenized money against uh, tokenized assets. The whole system becomes more resilient because there is no single point of fa failure. And last but not least, there is also a lot of potential to make cross-border transaction more efficient. Our third key takeaway from this podcast series is that the future of the euro will most probably be a public-private partnership that leads to a coexistence of public and private versions of the euro addressing different use cases, basically how we have it today. So we have the public side, which uh, is going to be um, uh, on a retail level, uh, probably a hybrid form where banks are in charge of the contact to the end user and not a direct form of CBDC. Uh, a CBDC, a public retail CBDC, won't address all of the use cases, as we have stressed several times now. And it's going to be rather slow, so it won't be implemented before 25 or 26 here in the Eurozone. On a wholesale level, uh, the new, a new technological layer uh, can be or will be introduced that might enhance the current role of central bank reserves in the system due to the advantages of the technology and therefore enable programmable transactions and delivery versus payments. But this will not going to have a dramatic shift or a dramatic effects on the money system as we already use public forms of money uh, such as central bank reserves for interbank settlements. So this is a very important 
uh, as this is going to become the cash lag for trading tokenized assets because assets are uh, paid with central bank money already uh, in the current system. So that was the public side. And now let's talk about the private side. What can the private digital euro do? I mean, one big advantage of the private digital euro is that it's agile and innovative, but there will be challenges because when we talk about the private digital euro, we are in a multi-issuer setting and we move away from central bank money. So we have talked about the problem of fungibility that comes up. So if everyone uh, issues its own token, it's not clear that these tokens are going to have uh, the same value. And uh, this leads to problems of scalability so that these uh, tokens then can maybe only be used in closed uh, ecosystems and cannot really scale and, and cannot be multi-bank um, uh, capable and uh, used across um, various uh, institutions. And last but not least, what's also important in, a, in the private setting is that there does not all only need to be fungibility, but we also need like technical interoperability, which means that the private sector needs to agree at least on certain technological standards in order to make the tokens they issue uh, interoperable um, among themselves, so among different banks. But it's also important that, of course, the token that is being issued by banks is interoperable with the smart contracts that are used by the industry in the end, because it is, it is these smart contracts in the end uh, trigger the payment, and the smart contracts need to be able to communicate with the means of payment that are issued by, by the bank. So we need interoperability on a technological level between banks and between banks and the industry. Yeah, I think that was it, Alex. Huh? <laughs> that was it. <laughs> A lot we of talking. Yeah. Hopefully, you you found this very interesting and insightful. Uh, I think this is uh, what we have pro pro uh, what we have provided here is basically the, the current discussion that is going on in the markets, and uh, we observe the evolution. One might say uh, even the revolution of money, and we're very uh, excited about it. And this is something that we wanted to share here uh, with you. And uh, I mean, it will be very exciting to see how everything turns out and which forms of money will be used in like five to 10 years and uh, for which use cases this money will be used. And uh, what we have done is we've tried to give our perspective here on the current developments, how we see it and uh, how maybe also it will be discussed in the future. Uh, and we hope obviously that this series helps you uh, to wrap your head around this uh, yeah, admittedly quite complex topic here. Yeah, yeah so kudos to everyone who has uh, sticked uh, <laughs> to us until the end because it's indeed it's it's complex. And nevertheless, we are looking forward to receiving your comments and feedback. Uh, please send us your questions. And then, I mean, the only thing that remains to be said is uh, thanks, Manuel, for joining these four-part series, for taking your precious time and helping me um, putting these uh, inf this information together and, and sharing it uh, with our audience yeah that the, pl the same applies to you alex it was a pleasure uh, thanks also for your time i also learned a lot uh, when we uh, worked on these topics so uh, yeah we hope that it helped you and uh, yeah looking forward to our future projects yeah?